Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, Words and Nerds listeners. I'm WA crime writer Alex Duke, and on this takeover episode, I'm speaking with the formidable Greg Woodland. Greg is an author, screenwriter, and former film director. He's made several award-winning films and has been a script consultant for 20 years. In 2021, Greg released his first novel, The Night Whistler, which was nominated for Best Debut Crime Fiction at the Ned Kelly Awards. In The Night Whistler, 1960s regional cop Mick Goodno and local boy Hal work together to catch a menacing boogie band who's been terrorising the locals of their regional New South Wales town. Mick and Hal are back in Greg's new book, The Carnival is Over, which is out in August. Greg, welcome to Words and Nerds. Thank you so much, Alex. It's a privilege to be here. Great. So, First, uh, first thing, Greg, could you introduce us to Mick and Hal? I'll tell you a little bit about The Carnival is Over, the new book, and that'll explain who Mick and Hal are. So it's 1971, a wet and windy spring in the small town of Moorabool, New England. That's around Armadale, New England. And at 17, Hal is stuck in the meatpacking room at the local abattoir. He's paying off the stolen car he smashed while joyriding with his mate Lloyd. And the one bearable thing about it is his friendship with beautiful, worldly-wise Christine, who's the young forewoman and who stands up for him against the killing floor bullies that, uh, that harass him for reading books and so on. And Sergeant Mick Goodnow is head of police at Moorabool, and he's been having a long-term affair with his old flame, Eileen, the wife of Mayor Streeton, who is Mick's former mentor, now turned his enemy. And when the town is rocked by two suicides, first the popular deputy mayors, followed a week later by that of Christine, Goodno's suspicions put him at loggerheads with the powers that be and put cracks in his relationship with Eileen. After another gruesome accident occurs, Mick is convinced something sinister is going on behind the scenes at the abattoir. But who can he trust when half the town is supported by the abattoir and the other half is willing to turn a blind eye. A posthumous letter from Christine forces Hal and his Aboriginal girlfriend, Ali, to seek justice for their dead friend, but puts them in the path of a man with a deadly grudge. The abduction of two young women then takes Mick and Hal on a nightmarish chase down dark back roads where the girls' lives, and ultimately Mick's own, will be put in dire peril. So that's um, that's a little bit about the, the new book. Well, very, very good. And I can tell you, everyone, that it's a great read. And um, not sure if anyone's seen the cover of the, of the novel, The Carnival is Over, but it's a very spooky atmospheric cover that matches the uh, description 
that Greg just gave us. It's a, it's a very nice looking book. Um, one thing I find interesting about Mick and Hal is their, is their relationship um, to each other. I'm wondering if you could sort of talk us through how, how you arrived at this sort of kind of quasi, I guess it's a kind of quasi mentoring relationship. Um, although as you did do mention that Hal is, you know, he's uh, stolen a car, so he's gotten on the, he can break the rules a little bit. It's a kind of knight and squire relationship, I guess, if you look at it in classical terms, but it's also, um, about a kid who's looking for a father role model, a father figure, because his own father isn't a terribly good father to him. In fact, in the new book, his father has no place at all. He's not even mentioned. Uh, and he does have a couple of father figures come into his life in The Night Whistler, the first book. Um, but in the second book, in a way, his mentor figure is, is still very much uh, Mick Goodnow. Now, Mick is um, an older cop. He's in his late 40s and the carnival is over, and that's five years after, after the Night Whistler. And um, he, Mick's own family, as um, he's split from them, and he now, uh, he's been having, a, um, having an affair with uh, a woman um, in the second book who happens to be the mayor's wife, which doesn't stand him in good stead with the powers that be in the town. But... Um, but Mick, Mick's own family is long gone. He has a daughter who's pretty much estranged from him. She blames him for the breakup of the family. And so she doesn't uh, contact him. So Mick is without a child now. And Hal is in a way without a father. So there's a kind of odd, slightly, um, slightly roughish father and son um, relationship here. And there's a mutual respect between the two of them they, and a genuine affection as well. And in this new um, book, it begins with Hal in trouble with the law and um, Mick has put in a good word for him, but he's, he's not very happy with him at the start of the book. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's a, it's a very um, it's a really nice uh, relationship dynamic and um, very uh, true to life of um, the the relationships that you can see. Uh, it reminds me, yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of um, a relationship between perhaps a uh, you know a teacher in high school and a student. Um, they the teacher wants the best for the kid, and the the kid is trying to is doing their best, but maybe not always, maybe not always succeeding. Uh, you you pull that off very well. Now, I, as I understand it, you, you grew up in a similar area in regional New South Wales, is that right? I did. My family moved to Tamworth when I was about six, and um, it, uh, South Tamworth was a fairly new estate place, and we lived in this new house with nothing but paddocks behind it for maybe a mile, a mile back, which was quite an amazing situation for a young kid you could just explore and roam all day long and that was where the events that happened in um, the night whistler uh, occurred to our family um, i had uh, four little brothers and my mother was at home looking after the five of us for weeks on end because our while our dad was away as a commercial traveler and during that time about a year after we'd moved into this house um, she started to have a stalker and um, 
the Knight Whistler essentially was based, well, loosely anyway, on um, my mum's stalker over the, over the course of, of several months. And um, yeah, so, but the, so we kids weren't privy to any of that. We had no idea. To us, Tamworth was a pretty amazing place and we loved it. It was a kind of place where you could roam free and um, there were a lot of paddocks. And in those days, helicopter parenting was almost unknown. So it was uh, going, you kids, head on, you know, go off, go and have some fun, go down the park. We'll see you at dinner time, and you'd disappear. If, if it was holidays, you'd disappear for most of the day and get up to any kind of um, adventures. And um, as we did, it's an interesting um, sort of way to explore, I suppose, the area that you grew up in through this sort of dual protagonist. Uh, one who's a, a young, you know, a young boy who, you know, like you had experience of that and one as well as the, as the cop. And I suppose it's, um, you know, re in retrospective, you learnt about the story of your mother's stalker. And so, um, yeah, it's an interesting way to, to explore the, the dark side and the, uh, you know, sort of nostalgia, I suppose, of the area. So actually on that, like thinking about these dual protagonists, um, Mick and Hal, do you, do you feel that you're, are you Hal? Are you Mick? Are you a little bit of both? Are you neither? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit of both, really. Um, Hal is a kind of nobler version of the kid I was with a bit more courage and so on. And, um, but I think I always had a kind of moral compass as a kid or tried to stick to one as much as you could when you were, you were, you were running wild a bit. Um, and Mick um, is a guy who's um, been around the block a few times and he's, you know, he's, he's in his mid-40s and um, he's also an outsider because he comes from Sydney. He was originally in um, homicide at Sutherland Police. And so he's arrived as a total outsider of this town, had to make his way into um, a country town too. And in a way that was not that different from my family who had come from Brisbane down, which was, you know, people considered a, a, a big country town, but it was still a city. It was a small city. And so we came from that to, to Tamworth, which was, you know, in those days, quite a small town. Now it's a, a very large town of about 75,000 people, thanks partly to the Tamworth Music Festival. But then it was, you know, it had about a third that population um, back in the 60s when we arrived. And um, when Mick got there, he also had to adjust because he'd just come from Sydney and he was, and for him, it's quite a downsizing because he was a detective sergeant of homicide running very important investigations at the time. And he, and suddenly, He's um, a probationary constable again, and he's posted to this, you know, two-dog um, outpost, this one-horse town, and um, he's now the low man on the totem pole at the Moorabool police station. Um, thank he would have been kicked out altogether, but thanks to a former mentor of his, he's been allowed to return as a probationary constable to see how he fits in, and not very well. To, uh, mm -hmm. in the night whistler although at, at the start of uh, the carnival's over he's now the police sergeant he's in charge of the station things have changed considerably so if you've got um you know share a little bit in common with Hal, 
Um, have you also, did you also steal a car and go for a joyride? <laughs> I did a lot of silly things when I was growing up and not all of them I'm proud of, but I never did steal a car. However, okay. I had friends who stole cars. I did have friends who stole cool. cars. And cool. um, in the carnival's over, um, Hal's mate Lloyd is kind of based on, he's an amalgam of a number of wild friends that I had growing up um, in the Gold Coast. That's when I was 17. We lived for a couple of years on the, on the Gold Coast, um, Tweed, Tweed Heads. And, uh, and uh, I, had lo- I had a lot of wild friends and I ran a bit crazy myself at, that, at the time. And yes, there were people who pinched cars, you know. <laughs> I never, never considered it pin stealing, you know. It was always joy riding. We're going to borrow it. We'll bring it back, you know. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so Lloyd, Lloyd is a kind of, in a way, based on some of those wild friends I had back then. And um, I, I later became a student at UNE Armadale. I went back to Armadale. And I, I loved Armadale. I lived there for about five years on and off, in, in and out of my uni, um, my aborted uni um, a- academic attempt. Uh, <laughs> you know, I lived there for, for quite a while. Mick is also, I suppose, uh, there's, there's parts of me and Mick as well. The mm-hmm. sense that he's done a lot, been around the block, um, had some a few successes and some big failures as well, and has had to start all over again. There's parts of me that in that in that that I can relate to. I recall an interview that you did a few years ago when the Night Whistler came out. Um, that that novel uh, began originally as a screenplay that uh, didn't make it into um, into production. I'm assuming that the carnival is over was always always a novel. Um, so I wanted to ask you the you know the writing process between sort of adapting a, a adapting a novel from an existing screenplay versus writing a novel just to begin with. Um, how did that how did those processes differ? Very different. Um, yes, the Night Whistler was an adaptation from a script then called The Whistler. Um, that had fallen over during the GFC. Um, it was very well advanced. It had numerous drafts of it over the years. But it was only going to be a cornerstone of the book. I, it didn't have any strong detective in it. It had a bunch of kind of keystone cops in it, which in, in reality was, the, um, was like the police that my mother had to deal with. Um, there was no Mick Goodnow coming in to solve the, the crime and... Um, restore order again. Um, So it required quite a large adaptation. There was a whole other strand as well. While the guy who harassed my mother for a year was a pain in the neck and very scary to her, he didn't transcend into actually harming, physical harm, that is, to physical harm. He He harmed her mentally and gave her all sorts of trauma. And my father too who tried to catch him on a couple of occasions. But um, that required a major adaptation. I really wanted to push it into the realms of crime. I knew when I started writing that book, I wanted it to be a crime novel per se. And so I needed some of the tropes of um, crime novels. And um, so, you know, I I came up with Mick Goodnow. And... um, I, I liked Mick and Hal so much that I did leave it open at the ending. I always did see that, yes, I'll, 
these characters could go on. And by the time I'd done the deal with text publishing, I knew there was going to be a second book, and I actually had in mind a third book. And that third book, I'm just in the process of delivering this week to the publisher. Oh, wow. So I do, yeah, it is exciting. Yeah, I do see it as a series that's ongoing. I've got, you know, I see it as a quartet, but who knows if people are still interested. And, um, you know, I've still got more stories, more movable stories in me. It will go on, hopefully. Writing the Carnival is Over was quite a different kettle of fish. There was no script, underlying script, to kick that off. It was, uh, I knew it was going to be a book from the start. And um, thanks to my screenwriting um, experience, I've been an outliner, a plotter rather than a pantser. And um, that's a kind of habit that's embedded in, in me, for better or worse, so I had to come at the book from plotting again. And so I did a fair bit of outlining for the book uh, after I'd done the research. And um, there are a few, par few parts of it I didn't know where we were going, but I knew pretty much how it was started, how it began, the first half of it, and I knew the ending of it. And um, so the rest of it um, was a combination of plotting and pantsing. You know, it was quite... Um, it's quite exciting to not know where you're going in a book for a while, but I, I eventually find that I travel easiest in writing a novel if I do know. And um, so, yeah, I tend to fall back on outlining again. I, I'm the same. I'm absolutely the same. And um, I have become more and more of a, an outliner as I've, as I've gone. And um it's interesting with pantsing um, in a, you know, in a mystery, it's um, I feel like, I don't know if this is maybe true or a controversial statement, but pantsing is maybe a bit, bit more fraught in a mystery because there's so much foreshadowing and things and it's got to, the plot has to hang together quite tightly and um, kind of making that up on the fly is, is quite challenging. But, you know, I say that and uh, you know, but, uh, excellent crime writers such as um, I think Sarah Bailey. She's a she's a pantser. She basically makes it up in, as she goes. So maybe it's just me. Um, <laughs> no, it's not just you. Uh, a lot <laughs> of people do. A lot of crime writers are pantsers. I'm amazed that Michael Robotham is. Um, his his stories are so intricate. Um, and same with Chris Hammer. But quite a lot of people are mm. plotters. I think. Um, um, Jane Harper is a, is a plotter. She has an outline and works out seven major points of the plot for her that she has to, um, that the story has to strike to work for her so she knows she can write, you know, 90,000 words. But um, uh, and a lot of people, I think, are somewhere between the two. And mm -hmm. I, I think that in this third book, um, I've, I've kind of leaned a little bit more towards Pantsing. But again, I've, I've kept returned to returned again and again to the outlines here and then. So you mentioned, um, you know, uh, that you, you know, you really like the characters Mick and Hal, and you, you so you wanted to revisit them. You see it as a series. One thing I, I noticed, like when as soon as I uh, read the, you know, the back copy of the book, is that it was set in 1971, which is five years after the Night Whistler. To me, that you, a normal series would just sort of, you know, take uh, pick up perhaps a 
a few months or uh, after the previous novel. But the five-year time, the five-year jump seems uh, it must be a deliberate choice. So I'm I'm interested in uh, why you chose to set it five years later, as opposed to uh, you know a couple of weeks after the events of the Night Whistler. Um, partly, it's because in a little town like Moorabool, which is a town of about three and a half thousand, it's a bit like those places like Tenterfield, Walker, Guyra, Urala, those kind of small New England, England towns. In reality, there's not enough heavy crime that happens in a year there. Crime, you know, there are crimes, they're, may, they're minor crimes, they're domestic crimes and so on. Um, if you're writing crime, you want some serious crime to happen. Now, I guess you, the choice is to reset the story and go back to... Um, you, you know, like Midsummer Murders, to reset every every new book um, at the same time. Or, um, but for me, I wanted the book to I wanted the books to evolve. I really never saw them all just being about a twelve year old kid and a forty three year old detective. You know, um, I wanted them to move on. And um, way back when, you're a film buff, and um, I don't know whether you know the films of Francois Truffaut. It sounds a bit, bit wanky talking about them now, but yeah. I was really wild about them when I was a young filmmaker. And there's, um, you know, there's the starts with the four hundred blows. There's a character called Antoine Duanel that was based loosely on Truffaut himself. There was an autobiographical element to him, and he revisited him in about another six movies later on. We saw Antoine Duanel growing up and falling in love for the first time getting married, falling out of love, having an affair, getting divorced, as, the, as, as you do. And um, um, it was about growing up with these different characters. It was but it was mainly Antoine and his world as it evolved. And I liked that idea, the idea of two, two or three characters, because another major character in it is Ali Tenpenny, um, the Aboriginal girl who's a friend, becomes friends, an on and off friend of howls through the stories and um i like the way of the people and the town itself evolving and changing over time so i never wanted to go back and reset it again in 1967 uh, um, i just liked the idea that there were other stories and there's more depth to it you got to know those characters better uh, for me it's kind of slightly more of a challenge as well um, because i can you know i, I wait to see how they grow and and they grow both of them you know does mick get any wiser in terms of his relationships you know sometimes yes and sometimes no you know and and what about how you know the mistakes he makes as a kid growing up you know they reflected a lot of the mistakes i made as a kid growing up and yeah so that's that's why i did want them to change now the third book is, uh, is set one year on again from the carnival is over. Things slow down a little bit. Having got to adolescence, he stays in adolescence for, for a, a, a few stories. And um, the fourth one I'm planning will be um, Hal about to turn 21. And it's going to be set around about the time of the Whitlam dismissal. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah I, suppose, I suppose over that time, um, you know, uh, as well as being, you know, a film buff, I, my much more boring interest is, um, you know, 
thinking and talking about social change in Australia. Um, and I think between the 60s, 70s and 80s, the um, over such a short period of time, they're just absolutely radical changes in the, you know, the way the country, the way the country, you know, was and just the fabric of the country. So um, it's, a you know, jumping forward a few years each time over that period keeps not only the characters sort of quite, um, you know, there, there's new areas to explore in the characters, uh, but the, everything around the characters as well is going through such a um, such a change, which is which is a cool which is a cool device. So, Greg, you're writing about a time uh, with quite different uh, social views. Can you talk to me about the challenge of accurately representing that era and the social views of that era, but in a way that doesn't feel off-putting to modern readers? I think the the joy of writing a story set in the 60s and 70s is that uh, it was a huge, a time of enormous um, political turmoil and um, social turmoil and social change. There was a lot of, um, a lot of turmoil, but a lot of progress being made as well. Uh, for instance, in the late 60s um, in Australia, Aboriginal people, our First Nations citizens well they weren't citizens they didn't have citizenship so a referendum was held in 67 may 67 and it was overwhelmingly passed thank god well overdue and aboriginal people were finally um legally treated as citizens and were able to vote in their own country they hadn't been up until then and uh, that was one thing so civil rights was huge people were pushing for civil rights. There was the Black Power movement um, in America that was also here in, in some ways as well. There was quite a lot of activism happening um, by both um, Aboriginal people and um, quite a lot of uh, uni activists and so on, uh, union people and so on were, were out in support of Aboriginal people for equal rights at the time, civil rights. Um, even in terms of their, what they were being paid, they were always getting paid less than white people at the time. So there was a lot of room for change um, in the town that I lived at in the 70s, Armadale. Um, a large portion of the Aboriginal population lived in third world situations out near the dump. In fact, it, it, it's fondly known or perhaps not fondly, but affectionately known as, as the dump the settlement that um, people had out, out there on the edges of an old dump. And, um, yeah, it was they had to live in terrible conditions then, very much third-world conditions for a lot of um, Aboriginal folks in, in um, Armadale. So that, while things aren't as dire in my books, The Night Whistler, as the situation really was, I think, um, I'm trying to give you an indication of the kind of situation, um, uh, the uh, social, the racial prejudice that was going on, the racism that um, people were exposed to on a daily basis. And I try to give you that through um, figures, uh, the proud figure of Ali Tenpenny and her father, Joe, and um, some various other people as well, Indigenous people who are in, the, in that in the book. As well as that, I'm also dealing with issues of feminism, especially in the new one, where there's actually a new young copper, a female cop, 
Now that was unheard of in country towns in the early seventies. But a lady cop, as um, they as they say, a lady cop, <laughs> a lady cop. They were they were called disparagingly Dick, Dickless Tracys by a lot of the coppers, Dickless Tracys, and um, so they really had to prove their worth, and they were often reduced to being the tea lady in a mm. in a small station and so on. But little by little, you know, women made their presence felt and made their they became, uh, you know, absolutely as, as important as any of the blokes there and a good deal more important than some of them. And so I'm trying to say in The Carnival is Over as well, I've um, got the character of Nerida Wakeley there, who's the latest probie, and she has to deal with the three, the three male cops that she's working with. And again, uh, Mick Goodenow is, is very fond of her and kind of protective as well, but... and. Um, but she doesn't want people to be protective of her. You know, she's got all these skills and she wants to use them. She's joined the cops to make a make a difference, not just make the tea and man the fort and hold answer the phones, which is what she's often reduced to doing. So your feminism, I think, is a is a part of it. And also, um, the early seventies was um pretty much the the beginning of the sexual revolution here in australia i think we were a few years behind uh, the rest of the world or the rest of the western world anyway um but the sexual revolution was was happening in a big way there was kind of even in country towns people were a, a lot more sexually i think ex experimenting and and more open and to different sorts of relationships and so on and um, so uh, in Mick Goodner has ha been having an affair with someone else, the mayor's wife, Eileen, who was his old flame, who he met, first of all, and fell in love with, in, but didn't have much luck with, in The Night Whistler. Um, well, now, when we pick him up five years later, he's been having uh, an affair with Eileen for quite some years now. And in fact, and... She's now, while she's now married to the former alderman, Adam Streeton, who's now the mayor, um, he's well and truly aware of um, Mick's presence in their lives and he doesn't like it. But um, Eileen insists that she will go to Mick's every Thursday night and um, that's been their pattern for some long time. And so he just has to like it or lump it. And, and he, he doesn't like it, but he, <laughs> but he handles it barely. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Mixer. Yeah, in Mick, I think you're you, you're quite successful with um portraying Mick as a as sort of um you know almost straddling the old Australia and the new Australia in that he's you know sort of more you know as you say kind of in this like more sort of experimental slash liberated sort of relationship setting. He's not an outward you know he's not a bigot. He's not um you know, uh, misogynist, but he, he is, he is quite paternalistic to, um, his, uh, female characters. And, that, and I think that's a sort of, that's a, a good representation of someone who, um, a character who is, you know, still has things to learn, I guess, but is, you know, trying to, to do their best. Cause it, I feel like it would be a bit of an odd, you know, choice to have a, you know, basically transplant back in time someone from 2022 with you know the social mouse of you know whatever 60 um 60 years after the 50 60 years after the events of the book so yeah that um that's that's 
uh, done quite well. And of course, with Hal as well, you know, that's a completely different um, perspective on these sort of social issues through the eyes of a 17 year old. Um, you know, as Hal's as, much um, more open to things, Hal yeah. is much more open to, to change, of course, and embraces it um, than Mick is. Mick is a man of his time, and yet he's a, he's a man with a very strong moral compass. And a man who believes in helping the battler, he's got a real, yeah, yeah. Um, a real compassion for the battler, and um, and the and he hates the bullies, uh, so he's willing to help to stand up for anyone who is under the thumb being oppressed at the time. Um, but as you say, he's he's a little paternalistic. That's right. He's on a journey of change as well, um, as I think Ross Bly, his offsider, says. Feminism, thank God, feminism hasn't come to Moorabool yet. Mm. But the writing's on the wall and any fool can see. And yeah. um, so they're aware that things are changing. God, there's mm. a woman at the police station. Now, that had never happened um, before, prior to about 1971. Mm -hmm. And um, so people remark on it. It's a pretty rare event. Yeah, now, of course, you know, every station, in fact, many run by women police. But mm. um, back in you know, 50 years ago, no, a, a rare thing, especially detectives. And the third book, she's on a detective's course. And oh, that cool. was pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, I without giving, you know, sort of too much away about the, um, about the third book, I'm wondering if you can give a, you know, a flavour of what sort of, um, you know, social change that our characters will be wading into one one that springs to mind is potential and that you know crosses over with um you know sort of uh justice the, ju the sort of justice system is potentially the anti-war movement yeah funny you should say that because the third book is really about um it's about the fallout from vietnam because as as you know uh, the vietnam war was going on all through the second half of the 60s and into the early 70s until Gough Whitlam came to power and uh, got uh, finished conscription and uh, the war started to, um, it, it's, it started to diminish uh, from about 1973 on, for Australia anyway. Mm. But um, uh, it has uh, a powerful kind of influence. There's just a brief mention of it in the night whistle because Ross Blyer's brother, was was in Vietnam at the time and had sent the boys back and sent his brother back a bottle of tequila he'd got on somewhere on leave, and um, but it's a much more strong presence in book number three, the, the new one that's coming up. I won't say much about it, but um, it's fallout from the Vietnam War, and one of the main characters in it is a very damaged Vietnam veteran. Um, so yes, uh, um, that's one of the key issues from the 60s and 70s and really it's why I like writing about it apart from the fact that it hasn't got technology in it I don't have to deal with <laughs> with change, changing technology every book sure. um, thank god and social media um, it's it's interesting really interesting politically and socially because of the huge changes that were happening mm, absolutely all right, everyone. Um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of Words and Nerds. So everyone, go out and check out The Carnival is Over and, of course, The Night Whistler if you haven't. And, um, Greg, do you 
uh, how can people um, keep in touch with you? What sort of, are you on? Are you on social media? Even though you don't want to write about I'm on. Or- I'm on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram, or you can go to my um, my author author website, Greg Woodland Author, and um, I, I'm always happy to hear from people who've read my books. Great. All right. Greg, so thank you, uh, Alex. Yes. No. Thank you, Greg, for your time. And I uh, can't wait to see what uh, comes out next. All right, everyone. Uh, have a great, have a great day.